I'm just already recording because every time that I have not recorded right when we started doing stuff, we get into something that's great and then we don't fucking have it. So right. <laughs> do that. We were waiting for you last week, Brian, with Tony. I talked to him for 30 minutes and he is just fucking cruising logic. He's like, do you know formal logic? I'm like, I failed it in college. He's like, cool, <laughs> let's go over it. <laughs> nice. I've heard that logic just depends on the teacher, much like philosophy. Yep. Well, you know, relevant today, and I was like making a list of good pragmatism quotes. Uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, the founder of pragmatism, said, few people care to study logic because everyone reckons himself to already be an expert on the subject. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. I started looking at some of those theorems from that stuff when you actually like see the if and or but and all of a sudden mm -hmm. I was just like, fuck this. That's yeah. just like high level calculus, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can teach some of that stuff, but I haven't had to teach it in a while and it's certainly not my forte now because well, it is more like doing math, you know? Yeah. And you're, what you're also like a phenomenal <laughs> philosopher and an armchair fucker like me. Right. So yeah. not literally like we'll put a comma in there. Cause it's not like armchair fucker, you know, <laughs> right. This is, this right. is where we're going today, Brian. It sounds like quite. it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Two Dudes Talk Tattoos podcast, a podcast so great it'll tear the pants right off your hind end. My name is Ryan. I'm one of your co-hosts today. You can find me online at bettertattooing.com, the Better Tattooing YouTube channel, or on Instagram uh, at R-I-A-N underscore O-T-H-U-S. My co-host for this amazing talk is Brian Matthew. That's one T. You can find him online at the Scarlet Vale Tattoo Gallery. Uh, Taylor Fit Tattoo Gallery on Facebook, Instagram, and all that stuff, or Brian Matthew Tattoos on Instagram. This week we have on Dr. Spencer. That's Albert Spencer, a professor of philosophy at Portland State University in my hometown. He is a radical person and specializes in the idea of pragmatic philosophy. He also teaches a ton of other stuff. I mean, the dude's written so many books, it'd make your eyes bleed if you tried to read them all at the same time. Yeah, I know. Nothing is making a whole lot of sense right now. I am super duper duper tired and a little bit under the weather, so I'm trying to do this recording right now as our intro under the weather. So thanks for sticking with me. Before we get to it, our commercial break. Ink Master is back with an all-new season on its new home, Paramount+. Plus. Host Joel Madden is joined by judges Nico Hurtado, Ami James, and Ryan Ashley, and guest star Dave Navarro as the Master of Chaos. Watch as legendary artists go head-to-head -head for $250,000 and the champion title. The new season of Ink Master is now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, now that's over. Let's talk about pragmatism. Oh my goodness, pragmatism. Now I know a lot of you may be thinking, oh, Ryan, this is supposed to be a show about tattooing. Yeah, it is. We're going to tie everything together towards the end of this episode, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but the beginning part of it is really going to be the foundational aspects of uh, what pragmatism is. We're trying to teach you some stuff, people, when you're listening to this. So pay attention, 
you know, write down some notes or something, question mark? I don't know. If you want to go ahead and buy Dr. Spencer's book beforehand, you can check it out. We're going to have links in the show description with all the places to find his good, good work. You can go and support him and everything that he does. Now, since I'm a little bit sick this week, I'm just going to skip right to the homework. Not a whole lot of stuff to do catching up. I mean, past the fact that we have a listener line now, which I think is kind of fun. If you have questions, maybe you want to just be featured on the show. You have something to say, good or bad, whatever in between. Hit us up. The phone number is 208-696-1828. You'll know you have the right number if you hear the Gilmore Girls theme song. Yep, that's right. That's how we roll. Gilmore Girls all the way. Uh, what else do we have going on right now? Uh, we have a couple conventions coming up. Me and Brandon have been prepping for. I got my new banner in the other day. It's it's pretty neat. I was supposed to be putting a nice fancy graphic on it, and I refused to do so. So I just put a bunch of words on it because that's just kind of my style, and I showed it to Brian. He thought it was the dumbest thing he's ever seen. So I know I'm doing something right. Brian, on the other hand, has been crushing just an immense amount of artwork i don't know how that guy does what he does but he works so freaking much he's gonna have a whole bunch of new flash sheets coming out and some new prints and some other stuff Uh, we'll keep you updated when those come out but let's talk about the live stream coming up next week if you like the show and you want to talk to us we are going to have a live stream yes we're going to be doing it across multiple channels facebook youtube all that other shit and you can just come on Listen to us talk about some stuff. We're going to have our buddy Carl coming back on if he's available. Uh, I've reached out to him before, and I know everyone really liked that show. Listen to Mr. Carl because he's like the nicest fucking dude in tattooing, hands down. And we're also going to be having my buddy Michael, who I was on his podcast a little while ago, talking about uh, drug use and science. He's going to be coming on and doing some other stuff as well. He's also been really helping out on the back end this dude like i went on his podcast and we just like clicked and him and brian clicked and we've all been clicking lots of clicking going on he's been helping out like so much with everything and i just want to start off the show by saying thanks mike you are the man anyways i was talking about homework right so let's get to homework last week just take care of yourself and i actually followed that homework i went for a little vacation which was super relaxing, but what happens every time you get back, oh my goodness, everything just collapses in because you've taken a couple days off and now you must suffer to the consequences of capitalism. Oh my gosh, nothing's done. Just start working. Uh, it's crazy. I took a couple days off. I came back and there was over 100 emails in my email inbox and I didn't even know what to do. So rather than deal with it, I just didn't which I think many of you listening to this part may have possibly done in your own time. It's not the best thing to do, you know, in in the service industry, turning away from potential work contact or, you know, client engagement is usually not the best plan of action. But I mean, honestly, I was just so done. I didn't know how burnt out I was until I hit the road and took a couple days off. So if you were one of the people out there who took the advice inside the homework and treated yourself to a little bit of time off. Maybe you're in the same space. So this week's homework is just try not to get overworked again. Oh my gosh. Who would have thought? Now, there's always like this tinfoil hat type of person inside of my head that's like, oh my gosh, we don't really know how many people died from this pandemic, but I don't really think that's it. I think that 
you know, we know how many people have or may have died, you know, within reason. And I know Tinfoil had a side on this stuff. We could always have a little bit of conjecture trying to figure out exactly, you know, what's happened, who to blame, and all this other stuff. But I think that's beside the point. We had time off, people. And capitalism is always marching forward. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to keep producing. And if we haven't produced for a while, we've got to make it up. So this coming week, your homework is stop being a capitalist. Just chill out. Relax. You know what? Nothing is ever going to be done in time. And guess what? If you do get it done in time, there's going to be more work in the future. Just chill out. Relax. Try to take some time to yourself. Get centered. Stay calm. We're coming into the holiday season here in North America. And boy, howdy, am I ever looking forward to racking up some more charges on top of them credit cards. So if you're like me, and you probably don't make enough money to live within the means that you've created. <laughs> just just chill out, you know? Things are going to happen. Life is going to happen. You're going to get stressed out. And there's, you know, little to nothing that you can do except for just sacrifice. And I know that that is one of the easiest things that we can do, especially living in the United States. I mean, now there's a lot of countries out there that maybe you're going through the same thing, you know, where you just got to give up something to try and help the betterment of business or industry or the people around you in your society. But let's just chill out a little bit. Let's just try to calm down, you know, let, rather than trying to give your time to the person who's sitting next to you or across from you or, you know, is sharing a space with you at work. Take some time to yourself. Stay centered. Stay relaxed. Stay calm. We all got this. Things are going to get better eventually. I know. We're all praying for a housing crash. Fingers crossed. Cool. Um, so, who are you? What's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? What do you specialize in? Yeah. Um, well, I'm Albert Spencer. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State uh, University. Um, I teach a wide variety of courses, but my area of expertise is American pragmatism. In fact, I wrote a book on it that it's came out book. in 2020. It's um, a good book. I yeah, have as recommended you can, it. As you can see, we spent most of the budget on you know, hair and makeup to make me look <laughs> over there, right? But Mm. But yeah, you know, so I specialize in American pragmatism, but I also teach a lot of courses on um, uh, applied ethics. So things like uh, philosophy of sex and love, military ethics, environmental philosophy. Um, for about five to 10 years, I've been studying a lot of indigenous philosophy. So I teach a, a class on that at Portland State uh, University. Um, and I'm a Longtime fan of Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, one of the exciting things recently is I've been bringing my personal hobby and my professional work together, and I'm starting to do more philosophy and Dungeons and Dragons stuff. In fact, uh, in the winter, I'm actually going to be teaching a class on philosophy and Dungeons and Dragons at Portland State University. So, <laughs> a lot of fun cool. stuff, and you can you can see my nerd cred with the Hellfire Club. <laughs> Right stuff on. like that in the background so <laughs> yeah, i told brian about that and he was nice. like geek shit fucking rad <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah cool. like your funko pops back there um i got my bob ross oh yeah they're actually funko some of the most collectible somewhere. i love it yeah 
Yeah. I like how your guys' space is all fucking organized and neat. Mine looks like somebody vomited up death, you know? And I just cleaned, too. To be fair, you're in a garage. I am in a garage. It's 97 degrees in here right now, so it's not too bad. It's not like last week. Right, we, we can't judge you too harshly since it's literally a garage. It looks like a garage. Yeah, dude, I sorted and organized all of my stuff. I organized my tool drawers again because the kids keep taking them and running them around. Got everything all set. All the extra parts are over there for rebuilding the one car. We're doing great. I can actually walk now. Here. I sent a, a video before Albert to Brian. And I was like, check out what's to my left. And I turn it. It's just like, fuck it. Just like, to the ceiling garbage. <laughs> and I was like, so I just today, I have my kid right here. And I, just went, fuck, I threw it out the fucking door. And then I closed it. I'm like, clean. You know, as, as, a, as, as a parent and somebody who does my best to manage a household, the garage is like a holding area before things get kind of flushed out of the house. Yeah. So it's it's all good. Right. It's, a, it's, a it's the window. Yeah, it's purgatory. Purgatory of everything yeah, in your house. Oh, jeezy crazy. Okay, well, let's, let's see about that. So where's my, I have so many fucking questions. So why don't you explain to us what pragmatism is? I, the loose yeah. sense, of course. How's that? Yeah, sure. Uh, pragmatism is a turn-of-the-century philosophy. Uh, it originates in America, although there's, you know, like uh, some European roots to it. There's also some indigenous uh, roots to a lot of, of pragmatic thinking as well. Uh, but the person considered to be the founder and first pragmatist is the mathematician and logician Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, Peirce is a fascinating character. He was absolutely brilliant. He was the son of like, like the greatest astronomer at Harvard, real great geniuses who anticipates the 20th century in many ways. He kind of imagined you could use an electric circuit to work out logical equations, which means he had the idea of a computer, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and uh, many other different ideas and stuff. But he had a lot of personal problems. He ended up eventually having, you know, problems with with drugs, like well, with alcohol and opium and stuff, and so that always made things a little bit challenging for him. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, here's uh, what the philosophy means. Uh, in one of his works, he wrote the line: "Consider what effects that might conceivably have practical bearings. We conceive the object of our conception to have." Then our concept of these effects is the whole of our conception of the object. That's known as the Purse's pragmatic maxim. And he's basically saying, and this is a logician, a mathematician saying this, philosophers tend to get too abstract about stuff. And they need to start, you know, coming back to the concrete practical effects and relevance of their ideas rather than yeah, it just Ryan. Being <laughs> i'm incredibly pragmatic he's incredibly uh, i like it is he's pointing prolific. a fucking gun at the goddamn screen right <laughs> well it's it's half a gun I'm it's just a receiver yeah it's so funny just like because it's waving i'm like is that loaded that's fucking great <laughs> it's, it's half it's half no slide I, this is the first time that we recorded a show and Brian has decided to come on and clean a firearm, which is pretty cool, but <laughs> we're shooting it yesterday. I'm going to the range tomorrow. Oh, this is a perfect time. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's, that's actually, I, I can, can I can, I can use this, you know, uh, uh, basically what purse is saying is that ideas and concepts are tools, Yeah, you know, like a gun is a tool, right. Mm -hmm. And, or 
any of the things in your garage there are are tools, uh, Ryan. Um, and so, you know, the question is like, how do we use our concepts to solve uh, or engage certain problems in the world? Or how were certain concepts invented in order to deal with certain problems in the world, right? Yeah. So uh, that's kind of his basic idea. And um, like I said, he had some challenges with, you know, kind of doing the traditional philosophy route and like getting books published and whatnot. So a lot of the development of pragmatism was through the help of his friend, William James. Mm -hmm. uh, now, William James is another fantastic figure. Uh, he came from a wealthy family in Boston, Massachusetts. Boston. Uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, right. Boston. For real. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, when you hear the phrase Boston Brahmin, you know, like James and his family, like that's that, that's who they are. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, again, he's another genius. He's a polymath. He spoke like four different languages fluently. He came from a rich family, so he was able to go to Europe all the time. Basically, any famous person of the turn of the century you can think of, James probably had lunch with them at some point. So he's a but, first socialite, uh, I guess. Like we'll say the first philosopher socialite, maybe of like the modern oh, yeah. times. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um you know, Peirce was one of his really good friends, so they had a big impact on on one another. And most of the work Peirce was able to do was thanks to James being able to get him jobs and venues and that kind of stuff. But but James contributed pragmatism as well. And James is also well known not just as a co-founder of pragmatism, but as the uh, sort of founder of American psychology as well. Um, it's kind of interesting. You know, James went to medical school. But he always had this kind of persistent identity crisis, you know, and suffered from depression a lot throughout his life. So, you know, he graduates medical school, but then he ends up never practicing medicine and like going on an expedition into the Amazon and all these other things to find himself. But we're lucky he did that because what he ended up doing was working on psychology and bringing a lot of those insights into pragmatism and philosophy as well. Because really, you know, prior to the 20th century, uh, psychology and philosophy were basically the same things. They hadn't separated yet. So you got Freud and Jung coming out of the existentialists in Europe around this time. And you've got James and some others coming out of American pragmatism at the same time, right? So um, James begins to kind of put it in this more introspective and personalized way of thinking about pragmatism. Um, writes several really important books like The Principles of Psychology and um, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which was the first work on comparative uh, religion. He like studied all the world religions and uh, you know, kind of objectively talked about their different phenomenon and what the significance of religious experiences are. And um, then the there's there's other major founders of pragmatism too, such as Jane Adams in Chicago, who founded Hull House. Uh, she's often credited as being a social worker, but she was a very important philosopher as well. And much like Peirce was talking about the pragmatic effects of ideas. Jane Adams wanted to emphasize that philosophy needs to go to work and solve social problems, right? Um, 
like yeah. poverty and, and class problems and issues like that, right? Mm -hmm. And this has a big influence on like the final pragmatist who really systemizes everything, um, which is John Dewey. Is, hang on, so is Cassie fucking building a shed again or something? I think the dogs are doing something. I, I just hear roaring in the background. Every episode. We had one time Cassie was hanging shutters outside. He like turns the camera. She's all hi, just like drilling into the fucking wall and stuff. It's just like we don't know if we're recording it until Cassie's come into the frame and been like, "Hey, do you want some pizza?" That's just like awesome. Anyways, I apologize. Oh no, uh, <laughs> no problem. I might have been going on a little too long. No, no, no you're good. You're yeah, good. So. I, I was gonna say like uh, it, it, because we're trying to establish like the foundation of why this is going to be important and how it can be applied tertiarily. If that's even like you know um, adjacent to most things we have to deal with are like tattooing specific. Right? Is we we have Beautiful. this? <laughs> are you done? You just held up a firearm. Is it clean? Yeah, everything's good. Fantastic. Is that the new one? Clean, clear, beautiful. Yep. Oh, there you go. Brian was sending me photos of him shooting leaves at a distance, sniping them off. Super duper fun. I am. Uh, I don't like guns personally. I enjoy guns. I think that they're fantastic as a tool. I don't ever want to use one. Stabby. I'm like Canadian. Canadians stab. They don't shoot. You know. I like to see the whites of their eyes. <laughs> The light fade. It's hockey culture. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I like to just nice. see him go down and fucking stay down. Um, that's so fucked up. Anyone who's from Canada who listens to this is going to be like, yeah, that's totally what's like. Because like the first day I went to Canada, I was like 18 years old. I get off the plane. I'm in Toronto. I'm like, da, 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 da. I go to bed, wake up, I turn on the news. So 102.1 The Edge, Toronto, rock and roll. And they have the news come on in the morning and they're like, oh, you know, there was three people pushed into the subway and eight people stabbed last night. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, what's with you Canadians? And the person I was with was like, yeah, we don't use guns. We like to see the light leave their eyes when they go down. I was like, Jesus, what? <laughs> That's so violent. They're like, you Americans are sissies. You guys will shoot and run away. We come right up to you and let you know we're there. I'm like, all right. Well, I'm glad I'm 18 and decided to leave the country on a whim and figure out what the fuck's going on with my life and ended up here anyways so let's let's think about pragmatism in and of itself right so if we're taking pragmatism versus like a traditional uh like western world philosophy like european philosophy how do they divert and become unique like what what mm -hmm. makes one you know so much more unique in comparison with like oh well, let's just go study some socrates and you know just figure ourselves out as a stoic person yeah well you know like philosophy you know in european philosophies always had that emphasis on rationality uh and concepts and you know more of a even a mathematical approach i mean if you think of plato you know plato said the forms like the numbers are where like knowledge actually resides then you get descartes you know who was also a mathematician saying i think therefore i am how can i have this foundational knowledge um the pragmatists really diverged from that because their attitude is that the way philosophers think of knowledge doesn't really cohere to the way we actually have knowledge in real life, right? Like we're always in this process of understanding the world. Uh, to go back to Dewey, like Dewey was really influenced by Darwin. And so he wanted to talk a lot about the live creature. You know, we're not just these brains in a vat, like Descartes would say, you know, we're we're more like, you know, uh, 
like a cougar out in the wilds or something like that, where we're we're constantly trying to read our natural environment and react and respond to it. And that our knowledge is kind of like this as well. We're always in the process of creating knowledge. So it's messy, it's difficult. It's not really a pyramidal foundation. Uh, Peirce likes to use the word like, it's like a cable, right? We've got a lot of these different assumptions and claims about the world that are kind of interwoven that help us to understand it, right? Yeah. But we, 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 we don't need to keep thinking of philosophy as, well, we need to get away from experience or we need to get to the beginning of experience. No, we need to look at the way we actually experience the world and experience knowledge about the world. And so it's a little bit similar to existentialism, which, as I was saying, like occurs during the same time. Mm-hmm. But the existentialists are way more focused on personal experience of the world and feelings. That's like Sartre and, and was it Bouvier or? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Nietzsche, Sartre. Nietzsche, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, um, Kierkegaard. Whereas, <laughs> all of them had depression didn't they like <laughs> well you know i i teach i teach existentialism too and after 10 years of teaching it i i just started off class being like is this just a class in pathology am i am i, am I, am I just telling you about you know all these people who were you know suffering from some kind of i think i don't remember whose class i took with with nietzsche but they're like all right listen this book, you can only do like 10 pages max at a time. Like literally, we're going to take it slow. You're going to have to finish this after we finish the semester. Right. Because if you have issues, this is going to dip you down into the shit. <laughs> I've, I've given that I've given that warning in, in existentialism classes before. Did I take your existentialism class, dude? I'm trying to remember. You might have been in there. That might have been me. Have been I, I didn't want to take credit of it for it, but... Listen, this is going to get heavy, guys. It's like we got into Kierkegaard. They're talking about like his fucking back and how he's just like all fucking sad and shit his whole life. I was like, oh my God. This is a unique lens and perspective from his own suffering as to how he came yeah. up with this ontology. It's like, oh my God. Right. Everyone is like, we're rich, but we're in pain. Let's explain <laughs> what's happening. Well, there's a, a lot going on there. I mean, I think uh, for one, yeah, it, it shows, you know, what Kierkegaard shows us is, you know, that the universal doesn't matter. Like the universal experience of the world is not my experience of the world. And so I need to articulate the world from my experience. I also read existentialism more and more of, you know, the European middle class realizing that kind of the myth of progress they had been sold wasn't worth it. So here they are, their material problems have been solved for the middle class, but they're not happy. Yeah. You know, they're still like suffering from these crisis of meaning and uh, what is is purpose. And that's why I actually like pragmatism because... Rather than, and I really love the existentialists, but rather than going that route, they turn away, they still embrace feeling and personal experience and psychology. That's what James contributes to it. But they turn towards, they turn towards science and community. Yeah. Right. So, and again, that goes back to that notion of pragmatism as solving real world problems yeah. or being informed by concrete problems. Right. Because, yeah. You know, we're not alone. We're in this together. We've got each other. Our communities may be flawed, but maybe we can make them better. Not perfect, but better. Yeah. And science as a methodology helps us to actually answer some important questions about the world. So it's not just 
all knowledge is relative or nihilistic or something like that, you know, we can have some sense of claims on the world as actually being true, right? Or at least conditionally true. That totally makes sense. Swear. Sorry. <laughs> We're not busting up at what you're saying. It's just this shit coming through my mind. I can hear like dog fights and doors creaking and it's That's like right. living in a haunted house. I don't every, understand. Every time we get about 30 minutes where Cassie's just like, I, when I go to do the editing, I've got like it, just these sections of Brian's mic where I'm like mute. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> so as long as the background doesn't get you, we'll be fine. Um, one thing I wanted to throw in there is like, I'm, I'm seeing uh, when we were talking about the existentialists is like trying to compare them to, I have a friend who's, who's from India and mm -hmm. she had said, you know, like there's all these people, these yogis and these people who are like, you know, leaders and and spirituality and meditation and like life changing and things like this. And it seems really weird that if you think about the influence, Jesus Christ, there's a fight going on in your place. Um, you just That's see this playing. Yeah. He's got wolves at his fucking house, Albert. Wolves. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, but we take those people who are like usually going to be regressed, right? They don't have wealth. They're segregating themselves from society and they seem to seek enlightenment from this. When we look at that, like as the parallel on the Western side, how it seems to almost be opposite. It seems weird to me at the same time, when we move over to pragmatism, it's kind of like everyone inside of it was just like, I'm going to sidestep over here. You guys go, my shit's adaptable. While well, you guys are arguing about something concrete foundational to start any of your basis off of. Is that, is that a good assumption on that? You know, I, I, I think that it is. Um, you know, one book on pragmatism called The Metaphysical Club by Louis Manan talks about how they were really trying to rethink philosophy after the Civil War, you know, because this does occur. Like James had two brothers who died in the Civil War. I, I, I think that's a important way of reading it. Part of the claim that I make in my book is one of the things that pragmatists were dealing with, either consciously or unconsciously, is that the United States is a settler colonial state uh, in that, you know, people from Europe came here, we might even say invaded, right, mm -hmm. and created certain nation states and, you know, had institutions that were designed for the purpose of, you know, exploiting the land, exploiting the labor of African peoples. Manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah. manifest. <laughs> I, I, I talk a lot about manifest destiny in the book. Oh. And so so they're really wrestling with that, either explicitly or implicitly. So like Dewey starts doing a lot of his writing in Chicago at the turn of the century. And man, that place was a hotbed of social unrest because its size like doubled three or four times in 20 years. You had the main railroad hubs of the United States there. So you had like the Pullman strikes and a lot of other riots and things. You had mass immigration coming from Europe. And like uh, there was real trouble with like slums being created and people living in inhumane conditions. So it's like, I, I, I'm sorry, Soren and, and Friedrich, you know, we're not we're not we're not living in, in, in beautiful uh, Copenhagen or hiking in the in the Alps. Alps. Yeah, we're uh, here dealing with the real problems of what your governments, you know, set up, you know, to, to create these social experiments over here in the Western world. So, so there's always that social component of it and trying to understand 
you know, what is the United States as an experiment? What does democracy mean? Democracy is a very important idea to pretty much all of the pragmatists. There's a strong democratic force behind it. Dewey Adams and another philosopher named George Herbert Mead were, were yeah. major influencers of the progressive movement, uh, you know, in the 1920s that, that saw a lot of our progress on labor issues occur. Um, so they yeah. do have a have political commitments and it would be left leaning, you know, given our our current current standards of judging things. Yeah. 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 Brian's from Chicago. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I was going to say, civil unrest never ended. Well, yeah, 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 for real. It, I mean, it just goes into different phases, right? Uh, it's kind of interesting because, like, how you're describing it, it's, it is. And I've read your book, and I know I've told you before. Like, I fucking your book's awesome. Thank I'm you. such a big fan of it. Yeah, I got to. Sh- I'm taking pictures in the margins sometime, and I'll send it to you because I think, like, you wrote a few hundred thousand words, but I'm pretty sure I matched it. The fucking margins. <laughs> My book is so messy. Anyways, um so let's touch on two things like one is going to be the political influence of this stuff and where we can see it now today and then two like how adaptable is pragmatism because that's the biggest thing i think to me from what you're saying i can hear like when you're integrating the ideas how society is and society is always in flux right like brian's saying like even though there's conflicts still in chicago go chicago um and go fucking puppies (laughs) i mean the the white one's the younger uh, one so he's uh, not as in charge Brown one's probably <laughs> kicking his ass. <laughs> his dogs are fucking huge. Wow. They're not little. Right. Like take take a German shepherd and triple it. Whoa. One of them is as big as his wife. Yes. He sent me a picture once. He's like, look at my dog. And it's just like Cassie sitting there down. There's this dog on her. It's like head <laughs> is up here and feed her down. They're like, Jesus Christ. Um they're 50% gray wolf. So Oh wow. Yeah. Mm. They can be I've, terrifying I've at times. I've known some people who've had yeah hybrids like that. It's it's pretty, they're pretty incredible. Ink Master is back with a new season and new home, Paramount Plus. Beloved legendary artists and the artists fans love to hate return to the shop to battle it out, facing some of the most exciting and epic challenges seen in the history of the competition, all for the biggest grand prize yet, two hundred fifty thousand dollars and the title of Ink Master. In the new season, host Joel Madden is joined by judges Nico Hurtado, Ami James, and Ryan Ashley, and Dave Navarro as the Master of Chaos. Watch as the artists go head-to-head for the championship title, facing some of the most memorable Flash challenges in the show's history, amped to extreme levels they didn't think possible. They'll have to prove that they're the masters of all the high-level skills that set an Ink Master apart. Composition, precision, color theory, finesse, stamina, and endurance. The new season of Ink Master is now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We can talk shit too if you want to. We always there's only one rule though. There's no names. Mm-hmm. You can allude. Um, if you have like a professional beef where you're just like, no one would know except for that one motherfucker. Oh yeah. And you just want to be like, okay, guess what? Remember how you wrote all those articles and you did all that stuff? And I just want to call you a motherfucker. Uh, okay. We can do that here. Well, you I, know, being a pragmatist, we're all about community. So I don't know. I try to make friends, not enemies. So back to the thing at hand. Um, Brian is so, yeah. Okay. So let's take it back. So, so pragmatism seems to me to be very adaptable yeah. because 
culture is always in flux. Things are changing. Things are happening, blah, blah, blah. So it, it feels like it always has to adapt. Well, if we're comparing it to more like traditional Western philosophies that seem to be static in mm-hmm. time, um, maybe there's a, like a benefit to this. Uh, the second part would be like, how does that translate to our society as it is right now? Because after reading your book, I know that there was a lot of influence at a certain time that seems to have faded over time uh, where people were talking about like things like education, you know, and like, and like culture and society as a ge- in general, like how they can make positive influences moving forward that may benefit each other, which maybe we don't see right. now. So, yeah, I mean, adaptation is a, is a great verb and one the pragmatists like to use, especially Dewey. I mean, like I said, Dewey was really influenced by Darwin, not the social Darwinism of Herbert Spitzer, where it's survival of the fittest. In fact, James Dewey, like they wrote papers, they hated Herbert Spencer and that kind of way of looking at the world, right? Because we don't we don't just improve through competition, we improve through cooperation just as often, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you get into a kind of reductive worldview and the pragmatists were against reductivity, you know, and thinking that there's only one way to succeed at things, that's that's part of the problem. The pragmatists are real pluralists. So adaptation in that Darwinian sense is very important to Dewey. We're always reacting, responding, and tailoring things to the new situations as they arise. The beautiful part about science is that it's constantly adapting. I mean, in July, we got these first beautiful pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh, man, those were so neat. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, oh, my gosh. And the beauty yeah. of that is that that is going to overturn a lot of knowledge we had about mm-hmm. the universe. The Big Bang is not what we thought it was. I mean, it's still there, right. but it's not the same. Right. We've got to adapt and change, right? Right, right. And so, we're like, at it pragmatically. Yeah. And that's what, <laughs> and Dewey loves the notion of growth. That's what it means to be a living creature. We're in this process of adapting, of growing, of changing. Um, and so, at the political level, um, Dewey was very interested in education and democracy. In fact, one of his major works is Democracy and Education, where he says, look, if you want a democratic society, you have to educate students to be participants in a democracy. And so you have to teach them scientific literacy. You have to teach them you know, civics and, and, and you know, basic history and, and ways. Critical of, thinking. Critical thinking. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so let's face it. I mean, there's plenty of like people in this world that really don't want a lot of public education, good quality public education, uh, because, you know, I mean, we can maybe make some George Carlin references here. You know, yeah. he says, we want somebody just smart enough to be able to turn the knobs and pull the levers, but not people with critical thinking who can challenge the system, engage in participatory democracy like I, I think Dewey would be on board with that idea. And um, so this does get him labeled as a liberal in our common times, right? Which is 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 justified because, uh, like I said, he was part of the progressive era. And so when we think about like a lot of the policies and the New Deal and stuff, you know, he would have been one of the people like kind of presenting this kind of cooperative vision of what America could be. Uh, um the new deal is that that's the fdr yeah yeah new deal yeah. pushing stuff trying to be as progressive as some of the yeah. more 
European states yeah. have decided to. And Dewey was World War II. And Dewey was from Vermont, which is where Bernie Sanders is also from. Oh, I, I so it's just in the blood. Yeah, like I, I, I'm sure I'm sure Bernie Sanders had some kind of a Deweyan education at some point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he's definitely like left of center. Most people who study pragmatism are liberals of some stripe, but. Uh, a good friend of mine named uh, Seth Venata has written a great book called uh, uh, Pragmatism and Conservatism, uh, where he shows how, you know, there are a lot of conservative thinkers who have also used pragmatism in a positive way uh, and in a constructive way. So I would really encourage like anyone who likes philosophy and is politically engaged to read, uh, maybe start with Seth's book, if you're, you know, more in on the right side of the perspective spectrum, but, um, you know, they have something to say, they have something for us to, uh, to think about. And so Dewey uh, is often called the father of public education in the United States, but sadly, none of his ideas have ever been fully funded in the United States or implemented widely. I'll tell you where they did get implemented, which mm. is in Scandinavian countries. They adapted Dewey's ideas, and that's why they have the finest public education systems like in the world, pretty much. So, yeah, yeah. I, I know it seems counterproductive, at least in the political sense, as to how we identify ourselves as capitalists, leaving it at the United States to where we'll see something like that and we automatically deem them as socialists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, politics aside, I often think that people conflate communism and socialism at least like the theories through specific media channels as being maybe a bit different especially tying them to hitler or maybe fascism and socialism conflating those two yeah um but i I actually i think that's kind of interesting right i've got uh dr venata's stuff up is he uh morgan yeah 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 Yeah. thank you for that i've got i have a reading list right now for the past two months it's so long (laughs) I've got 16 books on my bedside table. Remember, Ryan, the value of a library is not in terms of how many books you have read, but how many you haven't read. Yes. Another growth mentality idea there. Wait, can you hear that? No, no, no. You you muted most of it. I've got to hear her leaving the room. Oh, no. I had that orange juice. uh, When I took a drink of it, the fuck is it? Tastes like gin. (laughs) <laughs> like it must have like fermented or something uh uh brian lives in arkansas right now oh fine. Uh, so yeah. and uh dr spencer you're from kind of not really nearby nearby but nearby no, nearby cl- close yeah. enough i mean uh you know i'm from eastern kentucky appalachia um i went to school at baylor university in texas so uh, I've driven through Arkansas, got happy memories. It's a it's a beautiful place Whoa. down around the Ozarks and the hot springs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I live in Eureka Springs. So mm. literally in the Ozarks and the hot springs. Yeah. I think I drove through there. So again, it's just a cool little town with uh, all those historic buildings and baths and stuff, right? Yep. The entire town was built in the 1700s and every building is on the U.S. Historic uh, Registry. So to this day, there's still the same historic buildings. It's pretty wow. wild. Yeah, that's cool. It's so different than most of like the Pacific Northwest, where we look at something that's 50 years old, we tear it down and put it in a fucking parking lot. Mm-hmm. So, or a Walmart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not so much anymore. Walmarts aren't. Now it's a new season. <laughs> tear it down and put it in an organic market. Anyways, everybody okay. needs a Whole Foods. 
<laughs> Every, oh, fucking Jesus Christ. At least that's changing soon. What's that guy uh, who's running it? I read something about him recently. He's a right wing hippie. How can you blend those things? I don't know. He started the Whole Foods. They sold it. They kept him on, and he's like, ah! Is that like right winged because he's conservative? I don't know. I don't know. I've got a I've got a fair number of friends who would definitely be hippies and libertarians. So maybe that's my wife. You know, my fucking my wife is a she's like I'm a libertarian socialist. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. She's like it does. I want gold in the backyard, the government to fuck off, but I want the cops and the schools well funded. I'm like Jesus. (laughs) Well. libertarian socialist right at the heart i mean how would you define yours let's do this so i'm i define myself as an anarcho-social democratic person Mm -hmm. how -hmm. about you dr spencer how about you what would you define yourself as i don't know you know i mean uh my point of view is always like shifting a bit you know as far as like adaptation goes i mean i'm definitely left to center i'm not i'm not going to deny that um you know i think as as you age you you maybe do drift a little bit towards being more of a moderate on some issues but um you know i i really am i really think social justice is 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 critically important you know um so you said we could talk politics so i'm like fucking let's go buddy (laughs) right you know so so yeah so i do believe in the importance of social justice i mean i believe systemic racism is real you know that's that's a lot of what i talk about in my book and you know that the pragmatists were engaging that to some degree um yeah i mean i believe that you know we all benefit from like a good public educational system including higher ed you could say that's a belief of convenience and self-serving but i also <laughs> devoted I also devoted my life to this because i thought it was that important so even if uh, i were not using my degree to teach i would still really strongly believe in the value of higher education and that we need to need more of it and to make it more accessible to more people. Uh, so was that I'm like a bit a... of a pacifist when it comes to, you know, foreign policy, because that's usually been a bad thing. But, you know, I'm also <laughs> a real I'm also a realist on that, that that point of view. Right. And, yeah. uh, you know, Putin invading Ukraine is <laughs> that's 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 not a good thing. Right. Yeah. And so we've got to be conscientious about that. So, yeah. Uh. I, I don't know. Did I, did I go too far talking about Fuck no. too specific about politics? Jesus Christ. Hey, Brian, what's your political fucking agenda, buddy? <laughs> Fuck what people do. <laughs> Isolationist. Fantastic. Doomsday prepper. <laughs> Doomsday prepper. That's <laughs> uh, let's think about this. So, okay. So we're almost bringing this around. I want to make sure that people really understand kind of like the importance which I know we're only touching on briefly. If you want to understand more, you can always buy Dr. Spencer's book. It's it's fantastic. You are actually like, and I mean, fucking, it doesn't even have to be off the record. I know I told you this many times. Like, you're a really good writer. So Thanks. it was like an easy read. Most but people think, oh, philosophy, uh, I would rather jerk off a frog than fucking read that stuff. It's like, well, no, <laughs> this is actually entertaining. I piled through your book and like I did the first third in a day. And then I, I had to take a break because of like work and stuff like that. And I did three days, I think, total in reading to get through the entire thing. Cool, so, man. Yeah, I, it was well, good. Well, I would encourage readers to feel free to skip the introduction. I, I was, you know, if you know the almost the minute you send a, a a manuscript to the publishers, there's so many things you'd you'd do over. But uh, so yeah, for anybody who does pick up my book, go ahead and skip to the chapters on. 
uh, you know, James and uh, Purse or on Dewey and Adams are really, you know, I, I think you can skip around in that book and get yeah, a good sense of what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, I encourage that. I kept like little, little post-it notes, little like tab mm-hmm. markers. And I was mm-hmm. going back and forth through tons of stuff. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting is like how we talk about pragmatism. Like I think in your book, you had stated like this, this is the American philosophy. Like this is, yeah. this is truly like when we're thinking about USA, USA, like this is, this is what defined us to begin with at the turn of the the, the 20th century. Right. And then mm-hmm. it vanished. Mm-hmm. So yeah. why? <laughs> yeah, it did go through an eclipse. So like Dewey lived an incredibly long time. He died in his nineties and he probably would have lived longer, but he broke his hip playing with his grandkids and then got pneumonia soon after words. You know what I mean? He was just that kind of a guy who was writing till the end of his life. He was president of the American philosophical association. Um, but then he dies, I think in 1952 and very quickly, what happens is known as the eclipse of pragmatism. So and uh, it's a controversial thing amongst pragmatists and even amongst like professional philosophers in general. But I ended up talking about it in my chapter in my book. It's clear what happened. There was a bit of a of a hostile takeover of professional philosophy in the United States. So, um, you know, a lot of people. Well, after World War II, you had so many great philosophers in Europe that were fleeing Nazi persecution, you know. Um, and uh, a lot of them came to the United States, particularly those who were Anglo-American analytic philosophers. So still kind of holding on to the notion that philosophy can be conceptual and logical. You know, they're really focusing on philosophy of science, philosophy of language, philosophy of mathematics, right? And, you know, they really, uh, they kind of like took all the good teaching posts and then like, you know, join the boards of all the important journals and uh, conferences, and they just stopped inviting pragmatists or people who were doing continental thought or existential thought. They just, they just, they just kind of said that's not real philosophy. So we're just sort of done with that now. And uh, there, there's some pretty good evidence of, of how that takeover happened. Um, um, I think John McCumber wrote a book called "Time in a Ditch," which is is about that process. That's a pretty uh, fucking solid name, right? Yeah, I know, right? Jeez. And um, But there's other reasons, too. I mean, during the Cold War, I mean, you were kind of alluding to this with, well, we think anything that's kind of critical of pragmatism, socialist. So, I mean, pragmatism did have this progressive, critical point of view, and they were not Marxists. So Marxists are critical of pragmatists because they're not radical enough, and capitalists are critical of pragmatism because... That's well, not capitalistic enough, right? So they're kind of that's sort of where they fall on those issues. But but you know, it would have been probably career suicide to uh focus on pragmatism or that kind of critical social philosophy during the beginning of the Cold War, right? And plus a lot of the big people in Anglo-American philosophy, analytic philosophy, were actual war heroes. Like they had uh, the the you know the defense industry the the military had basically hired a lot of philosophy professors who specialized in logic and stuff like that for codes code breaking all this kind of stuff uh alec turing even though he's british is sort of the the best example of this but there were a lot of people in the united states too so and plus a lot 
pragmatism also really helped give birth to the social sciences. So if you are a student of Dewey's and you're here or James and you're hearing like, well, philosophy needs to go to work and solve social problems. If you take them seriously and you're really inspired, you're probably not going to get your PhD in philosophy. You're going to go and become an anthropologist, a sociologist, a political scientist. You know, you're going to go in to some other field that's going to help you to more directly. This is uh, what you did with me. This is what you and and, and Dr. Sager did with me. I was like, well, I was studying philosophy in college and I was like, hey, what should I do? And you both said, fucking quit. (laughs) I got my I got my associates and I was like, hey, Dr. Spencer, I'm thinking about doing philosophy. He's like, yeah, quit school. I was like, oh, okay. what do you mean? And he's like, just quit. Go out. You're already doing it. Go out. Do it. Jesus Christ. So you got dogs fighting? Well, let me let me qualify my statements uh, about yeah. you know the advice I gave you. I, I I think we need more philosophy majors in this world. Because look, when you when you it, it doesn't matter what you major in in terms of what job you actually end up getting. Like this is just sort of a fact, but when employers are surveyed about what traits they want in a job candidate, they want critical thinking. They want good writing and communication skills. They want the ability to, you know, process information and learn on their own. They want someone who can work across cultures. Hmm. If only there was a major that let people (laughs) work on these four things in particular, I wonder what it would be. Well, philosophers do that, but no, that can't be the right answer. You know, I mean, uh, philosophers are great for this and, you know, really philosophy is the love of wisdom or as socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living you know we we need more philosophers doing everything in the world <laughs> i mean like people with that kind of insight you know and so uh so i certainly think there's and the data bears this out like most people with philosophy degrees the median income at mid career is like 60 grand a year so i mean philosophers do okay to, to all the parents listening, let your child major in philosophy. They'll be fine, right? Yeah. But um, but yeah, in terms of going on to grad school and becoming a professional philosopher, it's just such a competitive field and stuff. And so, I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing anything else, you know, and I am like so grateful for the life that I'm living and stuff. But but it is one of those things where it's it's really challenging to find jobs in profe- as a professional philosopher today. And so, you know, it's always good to, to kind of with anything like, are you sure you really want to do that? Like if you're, if you're committed, if I if I reject you three times and you still want to do it, then uh, like, the East Asian I'm, philosophy. Yeah, yes. exactly. You know, yeah. then I'm, I'm behind you full force. You know what I'm saying? But you got to be. Yeah, a little bit like that kung fu master monk, you yeah. know, on the on the mountain, just being like, no. So I remember going into Alex Saker's office, and I don't know if you ever seen that dude type. Oh, Jesus, right. wept. You want to talk about jealous? Yeah. Oh yeah. man, he was holding a whole conversation with me while writing an argument in response to someone's argument against his argument in regards to border theory, and I was like, all you hear, Brian, dude, like legit, is. It yeah. sounded like a fucking hive of mosquitoes and he had to stop and he sat there and put his thumb on his head and he's talking to me and stuff. I'm like, are you, why did you like you type faster than you fucking person? He's like, hang on. 
he turned the screen to me and it was catching up. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is a modern computer. Whoa. <laughs> he I is, had no idea about that, but like, was, yeah. Yeah. He, I don't know if he was showboating or something because like automatically, so I talked to you, I went right to his office right afterwards. And I think I talked to one other person as well. And I like, and he did that and he's like, you should quit. It seems like you already are doing what you want to do. Don't yeah. stay here. Don't go in debt. Do you want to teach? I'm like, well, I want to teach something else. He's like, leave. And then he's just like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. So everyone's like, why'd you stop school, Ryan? I said, because my teachers told me to fucking quit. Well, I, I, don't, I don't remember telling you to quit, but I'm just saying, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, like it, it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, said, I mean, I like, said, like, I said, I, I asked you specifically, I was like, so I want to do philosophy, but, and I had like all these other things and you're like, do you want to get a PhD? And I'm like, well, do I need a PhD to do this stuff? You're like, no. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. and then all you're right. like, well, then just don't do it. Like, why would yeah. you go in debt to go get a PhD if you could just go oh, and do well, it? That, yeah. Well, that's yeah. different. Yeah. 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 You didn't tell me like punk rock, Ryan quit fucking school. You're like. <laughs> Like, all right good good, I was good. Like, yeah i was like i'm heading to 40 do i need to do this and you're like what do you do for work and i told you like no <laughs> yeah well we're back to equilibrium now, yes but... yeah, yeah yeah no <laughs> i don't it's not like you're walking around looking at an 18 year old kid and you're going the system's bullshit go fuck yourself right. get out there fuck the parents no 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 i and i think it's real sad we're really in a phase where we're getting a lot of anti higher education propaganda this has been going on for about six years and like, and it's class warfare stuff. Like I see a lot of people like, uh, what is it? Micro on dirty jobs. I love that guy's show. It's so important. You know, I, I come, I'm the grandson of a coal miner, you know, I know what, how important dirty jobs are in this world, you know, but even he presents like this false dichotomy that like, yeah. you know, we need more people going into vocational school, but they're being told they need to go to college and like, and that and, and then you hear like in the wider conversations about this that like professors look down on vocational that can be we love this sort of stuff we think it's important in fact the pragmatists love that one of the things that dewey says is that like there's no difference in the form in inquiry whether it's you know astrophysicists working on that james webb space telescope or the mechanic trying to figure out what's going on with your car we're all trying to like solve problems all work is meaningful, you know, mm. um, you know, but anyways, it's, it's just one of those things where the two have always been pitted against each other. And man, I know that like the cost of tuition for college has gone through the roof and we, we, you know, we're finally starting to recognize our student loan crisis and problem we're having with uh, a generation of students now who are under, you know, a lot of debt and stuff. So you know, I, it's it's an issue. It's a real issue. And I can understand why a student has to think twice about that. But, you know, an education is its own reward. Uh, as Aristotle said, an education is one of the best provisions for old age. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's a good, like, quote. you know, you know yeah. education is about like helping you to become a better person and to think more independently and critical about the world, you know, so. Let's so I think it's just kind of sad that we're we're in that sort of phase. And, um, you know, obviously we're we're talking about this a week after Biden announced, you know, uh, ten thousand dollar remission for student loan debt for, for students. You know, 
I mean, I'm, I'm no economist, but I think that's going to have a lot of positive benefits, not negative. I mean, you know, uh, how many people are not buying houses now because they've got student loan debt to pay off? Yeah, right? that's going to end up fucking getting jacked up. You see Jay Powell? Jay Powell, the, the Fed chair, he's they're talking about taking drastic measures that would mimic what we had seen in the 1980s occurring soon. So we could expect possibly at the most mortgage rates doubling from where they're at now. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, that, you oh. know. And, uh, and it's particularly hard for millennials. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I kind of like rode that last wave of, of decent economic times. But, you know, if you're a Gen Xer, you were born after 9-11, <laughs> you know, you, you had to, your, you and your family went through the housing crisis. Oh, the Gen Z or millennial? Uh, oh, okay. Well, maybe, well, really both because no. it hit them in, in two different ways, right? Yeah. I mean, if you were a millennial, you were going on the job market right when the housing market collapsed. You know what I'm saying? And uh, and now COVID and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, things were much more stable even just two small generations ago, you know. And, yeah, and that's I, so I, funny. I I, I'm at the shop working. And Brian, I don't know if you get this as well. But I see people coming in for a tattoo that are born after Y2K. And I'm like, <laughs> do you remember people prepping? And they're like, no, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> like, did your parents prep? They're like, no. Right. What do you mean by prepping? Wait, how old are you, Brian? Like, I don't even, I fucking know anyway, you for like fucking just four like, years, when you dude, said prepping, I don't even know your fucking age. Are you talking like dude, doomsday what? prepping? Yeah, like Y2K, Y2K oh my expecting God. the internet to kill everyone How prepping? old are you, Brian? I'm having an existential crisis right now. I'm about ready to go and drink a <laughs> bottle of gin. Oh god! Yeah, but like old now. my yeah. family didn't prep for anything. Oh, dude! So the idea was, Y2K was the computers handle all the credit and all the banking. They didn't have a four-digit year, and we were going to be coming up to the new millennia. And so what was going to happen is when it got to ninety-nine and swept over to two thousand, instead of being two thousand, it was going to go back to nineteen hundred. And all debt was going to be erased and all money was going to go away and the fucking satellites would fall from the sky and China would invade and we'd all fucking die. So people started fucking stockpiling water, ammunition, huggies, and formula. And they're just like, let's go, bitches. And then all of a sudden, they put out this stupid patch where it's like, I remember if you remember that Albert or not, but like you could just go sign up online, CompuServe, beep, beep, right? Hop on, get your shit and update your computer to make sure that you wouldn't fall victim Mm -hmm. to this terrifying fucking disaster that was going to happen. People were on rooftops in New York at the start of the fucking new millennia, ready to be picked up by aliens. Yeah. You know, you had, uh, who, who were the fucking, the people that did the purple Kool-Aid stuff. There was the dude, the, the the old white guy with the purple robes on TV. Oh, hell Bob. Yeah. My family was just too poor for all this. Heaven's gate. Yeah. Ugh. there's so many weird things. Everyone mm-hmm. was a prepper back in the like the nineties. In you know, as soon as Clinton hit, he's like, "Hi, I got a saxophone. This is going to be a good time, guys." And then it was just <laughs> went fucking sideways, you know. Like, well, if this guy's running the country, we got to build a bunker, you know. Yeah. No, we were just too poor for all of that. <laughs> no, my granddad was really fretted about that. He was a he was a religious fundamentalist and what's known as a dispensationalist oh, which is a I have it's a way of the reading the bible 
with with heavy emphasis on the end times. And mm-hmm. I love my grandfather. He was a big influence to me. I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with him today. But, you know, he kept saying he wasn't going to die. He was going to be caught up in the rapture. And, you know, uh, he passed away in 2002. So, I mean, you know, it's just uh, but the truth is, man, I've, I've always he just I got still, his math wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so I've always had in my mind, though, you know, a lot yeah. of that uh, apocalyptic paranoia and stuff. Yeah. You know? so, the, so the so the pandemic's been fun. Oh, you that's know? been fucking great. It's like growing <laughs> up as a Jehovah's Witness, right? When they just keep moving the oh, time yeah. to ascension back every 14 fucking years. Don't worry. We got it right this time. And it's like you're right. always at that cliff's edge of yeah. like, well, it's still coming and you can't fucking yeah. relax. Oh, this whole conversation is just something I don't understand about society. <laughs> no. Yeah, you go up in the fucking slums of Chicago, right? It's a little bit different. You just like you can see your block. This is it. It's, it's just complete <laughs> asinine to me to have such a strong emphasis on imaginary things. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Brian Brian uh, make any sense. What was the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago? You were talking about the delusions of people and fucking grandeur. When they delude mm. themselves. Right, delusional life. grandeur. Yeah. yeah. It's like you just like think that you're so fucking important something's gonna happen. It's like, no, you're just a species on a rock in the middle of nowhere, and one day you're gonna die and yeah. no one's gonna give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. Where are we at? You know, where it's like nothing matters. And it's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's like, and like the guy and the other, like it's two Buddhist monks and the other monks smiling, you know, like one's in despair and one's happy about that. Right. Uh, that's, that's this right here. I, I like, I ended up in the hospital a bunch of times just recently because of health stuff. And Brian sends me a text. He's like, I'm glad you're not fucking dead, but if you do die, I'll have one drink for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that actually means a lot, bro. Thank you. That's he's love. Like, he's like, don't don't think too much on it. It's fine. <laughs> Just like, that's my buddy right there. <laughs> okay, so w- with the stuff, I know we kind of got on a tangent there, but I, I, one thing that you were talking about specifically with with like the work and school and all this other stuff, I was thinking about like what is maybe if you could speak for pragmatism here, and maybe that maybe that's not fair at the same time, but. Maybe what's your idea with the idea with with the concept nowadays of people being told to find their bliss with work that people mm-hmm. are identifying through their jobs they're moving out they're trying to like the younger people are trying to go out and do this I swear to God Brian this is going to tie back into fucking tattooing and so like you're going out and you're trying to identify through your work right like yeah. which seems really American like this is this is a truly like Western concept like the value of you as a person inside of society is wholly tied to what benefit you can give monetarily mm-hmm. inside of society. So mm-hmm. how would you interpret that as, I guess, a pragmatist? Does it make sense? Is it, is it ludicrous? Yeah. Is there somewhere in between? Like, how would we identify that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, uh, Dewey's educational idea, you know, he, he, he starts with young kids, is that like, if kids aren't interested in the subject, no learning is going to occur, you know? So he's always about, Education, yeah, we have to, education has to be about practical purposes. So like I said, educating for democracy. Um, But we have to keep, we have to meet our learners where they are so that they're interested and that they have that passion. So passion's important. And I definitely think if you can figure out a way, I mean, I would tell every 
young kid to dream big and to like figure out what their passion is and to go for it. Did I, but, you know, sorry, you got your, cut you off. But, Did I tell you about my fucking 10 year old's life goals? Oh no, no, no. His what, what, what are, So all the kids in the school, when he was like in, in second grade, they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And these kids are like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter. And I want to do these great, big, amazing things. And he came to me and he said, I need to figure out something to do. And I said, okay, Caleb, what's up? And he goes, all right, we got to write a report. I'm like, your handwriting sucks. So I'll help you with it. He's like, okay, cool. He's like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm like, well, what are you good at? He's like telling people what to do. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> so let's run with that. What do you want to do when you grow up? He's like, I want to tell people what to do, but I don't want to get in trouble if I'm wrong. I'm like, oh, that's middle <laughs> management. He's like, middle yeah. management? He's like, do I have to go to college for that? And I'm like, no. He's like, oh my gosh, really? No student debt. <laughs> He's like eight. I'm like, what? Right. He's like, okay, when can I start this? Well, when, even when you're a teenager, you could probably get a middle management job at a fast food chain or something like that. And he's like, really? He's like, do they make good money? I'm like, I told him to be a politician. He's like, I, yeah. I said, it's, it's okay, money. He's like, great. So, so if I tell someone something to do and they do it wrong, I don't get in trouble. And I'm like, that's kind of the goal of middle management. Yeah. And he goes, I've done it. I know what I'm doing. He just like left is for his report. They said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, middle management. And that's all he handed <laughs> in. And he handed it down. Like someone else is supposed to write his goddamn paper and walked off. The teacher was like, he's extremely confident. We think he's going to do quite well in life. And I'm like, <laughs> so, uh, I apologize when I thought of how you're going with that. I thought that would fit in there well. So anyways. No, no, it makes perfect sense. I hope I didn't no, make but, you lose your train. Oh, no, not at all. So, you know, so I would say like dream big, but, you know, also mm. have little dreams and backup plans and all that kind of stuff. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, there's no reason not to be ambitious. Um, you know, there's kind of, I'm actually drawing this a bit from Kierkegaard. Uh, there's two kinds of despair in life. You know, there's the despair that comes from not achieving your goals. And there's the despair that comes from achieving your goals and realize you kind of set them too low, uh -huh. you know, and Joseph Campbell, who says, follow your bliss. He also has another thing where, you know, before you start climbing the ladder of success, make sure it's up against the right wall, you know? So, <laughs> so these are, one. these things are all important, but at the same time, like, you know, there's a lot of ways to have a happy life and, you know, you can pursue your passions. They don't have to be your job, you know? I mean, um, uh, and so if you find a life of convenience that helps you to live well, you like your work, you're, you get paid what you need, and then you can do things, you know, that, that you really want to do in your time off. I mean, that's a wonderful thing too, you know? I mean, there's no better way to kill your passion than to make it your job. I mean, that, <laughs> and, you know, like, and, and even with philosophy, I love it, but grad school is really tough because yeah. in grad school, you do have to make it your job. And a lot of people, it really kills the desire for doing philosophy during that time right. and stuff. I kind of think of ACDC, you know, that, that first song, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, you know, like if you want to rock and roll, man, if you want, if you've got a big dream, all right, let's do it. Let's be committed. Let's give it everything we got. But you got to be ready to, you know, get took and, and like, you know, have all these people standing in your way and different stuff going on. So you got to you got to be bold and you got to be you got to persevere, you know, um, but there's 
this is where it ties into tattooing buddy okay all right (laughs) i was just thinking in my head i was like yeah kids everyone's excited until you do it for 20 years yeah which is where we're at and we're jaded and fucking disjunct and we're trying to find another way to do it so the the premise dr spencer of our show Mm -hmm. is that i i tried to take the science and philosophical side and drive things really far one way and brian is an artist in the most purest sense of the way if i don't know if you've ever seen his artwork or not i'll have to send you some the dude fucking knows how to draw (laughs) so much so is that i know that there is no fucking way i could ever compete with this guy no way but we're gonna go into a uh convention here soon and i think this is a perfect description of like how we're both doing this differently right he sent me a picture earlier this week his wife sent me a picture it was two days ago or something of what their spread is like at a convention and he's just it's it's fucking beautiful like i can't say anything other than this brand like it was a beautiful sight to see how professional well laid out well thought out everything was it was ordered it was it was it was magnificent and then his wife said so do you have a banner because in the conventions we have these big banners that kind of like roll down the back right and i said no and so she said dot 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 ellipses right we like congruency can you please fucking get one i was like okay (laughs) so she sent me a coupon code as well for another place so i go on and i make a a banner and normally the banners are these large elaborate designs with filigree and names and oh my gosh all these things and qr codes and i I didn't do that i i had one that's that had just a bunch of text (laughs) so you thought I would post something with a picture that would catch your eye. I didn't think I'd do that. Instead, I'd like to ask you about your tattoo and I have all of this fucking script going down six feet. And I sent it to Brian and Brian's response was, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. I would never talk to you ever if I went to a convention. <laughs> and I said, nailed it. That's the premise of this entire thing. I said to him, and I've done some fucking shit in the past month to this guy. He's just like, I can see him just going, what in the fuck is your problem, Ryan? You, what the fuck? And it's just like, I've never had somebody type an entire text to me in all caps until Brian. And I was like, yes, we are so much besties. I fucking love you, dude. Anyways, as we're bringing things back around to how we're going to tie this into tattooing, what we see nowadays, it's gonna be like two parts. So we've got we've got an introspective look um, from the outside in, and of course, then externalized viewing from the people who are inside the industry looking out now. Right? When we think about tattooing, especially when we're getting into it, a lot of people who are getting into the industry now are seeing it as a a sense of freedom attached to the job. Right? There's this this uh image that's pulled up in your head of a bit of a rebel there's a bit of this a bit of that and you're gonna be able to have freedom and find your bliss and you're able to do all the things you do and when people end up actually getting into the industry what they find is that you don't actually have any freedom zero you're literally just designing stuff for other people consistently Mm -hmm. you are constantly being judged there's a critique around every corner you're never good enough, like especially if you compare yourself against. And like I got you guys stacked on my screen, so I'm gonna point down at Brian because he's underneath me. Especially <laughs> if you're competing with this fucking guy, which is really fucking difficult, right? So 
if we were to think about how a pragmatist would try to align themselves inside of a situation like this, how would they be able to define that? But not just aesthetically, but let's just say we're thinking about education inception into the industry and stuff where maybe you are a bit diluted. Maybe you're a bit marketed. Maybe you're a bit like uh, convoluted about how the actual outcome of this is going to be. If you were a pragmatist, how would you advise someone to try and like come into this field and yeah. maybe like join it, be a part of it? Well, one of the simplest ways pragmatism gets described, I think it was James said it, truth is what works. I mean, he meant a lot more than that, right? But there's some truth in the notion that truth is what works, right? I mean, you know, with any field you want to get into, you've got to learn to hone your craft, right? And so we may come to any field, whether it's art, literature, philosophy, tattooing, you know, with a vision of like who we want to be and like what kind of things that we want to do. Um, but we've we've got to put in the work. Yes. You know, pragmatists are all about getting your fingernails dirty, right? Work, community, problem solving, right? So, uh, you know, taking on some kind of apprenticeship, being content to be doing, um, you know, even if it's not stuff you, you want to do, what are you learning while, while it's going on? I, I gave an example to a, a friend of mine. We were talking about, you know, like growing up in small towns and stuff. And I told him, I said, my biggest regret was, you know, I'm a musician. I play, played guitar. I wanted to like be a professional musician when I was younger and stuff. I lived in Appalachia. So that's like the heart of like bluegrass music and all this traditional music and stuff. Get that jug going, buddy. Hell yeah. But I hated that stuff, you know? Like, I mean, I, I was a metalhead and, you know, I wanted to, you know, play like Randy Rhodes and Dimebag Daryl. And, Hell yeah. you know, I thought it was James Hetfield <laughs> from Metallica for a while, that kind of thing, you know? So like, you know, a typical teenager, I thought that stuff was beneath me. But now that I'm older, man what a missed opportunity that was like even if that wasn't the kind of music i wanted to make right or a career i wanted to have i could have gotten so many like more like gigs playing music i could have uh learned at the feet of a lot of the local masters on that style of music you know another person from my hometown is you know multi-platinum grammy award-winning artist chris stapleton right oh, like he's He's only a few years older than me. Like, oh, no like shit. We, we've got like, I, I don't, I don't think I ever met him. And that's surprising in a town of 5,000 people. <laughs> and we were both musicians. I think that speaks to how bad a musician I actually was. <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, that guy put in the work, <laughs> you know, I didn't. And so I'm a philosopher now and he's, you know, like, one of the great musicians of of uh, of our generation. I absolutely love his music and it's great vicariously dude. through his success. But like, you know, and this is what the pragmatist would say. We are shaped by our cultural and our natural environment, right? So invest in that environment. Get invest in that community. Learn everything you can from where you are when you are in that place. You know what I mean? It's not to say that you can't travel or that, you know, I certainly understand what it's like if you feel you got to get away from the place that you're born in. I mean, I, I love where I was born. I have so much respect for it and stuff. But, you know, I it, just one of those stories where I, I felt like a misfit a lot growing up. You know what I mean? And had to go somewhere else to find those fertile soils for me so that I can be who I am now. Right. So that I can be myself. But 
I would say to any young tattoo artist, like, yeah, it may may suck that you got to do, you know, a lot of the clip art or, or whatever you guys call it that's on the wall or, you know, people just wanting their girlfriend, boyfriend's name tattooed on their chest or something like that. But that's that's part of the job. Learn what you can. Talk to the people. Maybe you can make some interesting contacts that way. I don't know. You know, yeah. um, stay open. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of opportunity is being prepared when the door finally opens it. And you're more likely going to be ready for opportunity when it knocks. If you're doing the work, if you're prepared, then if you're just complaining about it or being a prima donna about things and, you know, yeah. not thinking something's good enough for you or, or whatever, you know, elevating so that, your ego is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing. It is. And I can't remember where I heard it, but, uh, I heard somebody say that uh, they were speaking to like uh, people at an art school and they said, what's the one thing we can tell like students in high school to get them ready uh, for, for college, for going to art school. And they said, don't tell them that they're talented. Don't tell them that they're great. (laughs) Stop, stop giving them an unrealistic perspective of how good they are. I mean, inspire them. They weren't saying don't inspire them, but like, so many people were showing up and not wanting to take basic classes like drawing and sketching and these kinds of things. They weren't wanting to learn the fundamentals because I am the great artist of my generation. I already know this stuff. I should be able to go into the top classes. And it's like, no, there's all these skills you need to learn. And the people there are able to teach you and you should be amenable to that. So yeah, find what opportunities are the word talent is just a crutch. What's that? Oh, talent is so the word talent is just a crutch. I think so. It's I mean, an another... ignorant belief system that forces you to stop actually working on yourself. Yeah. Just don't I, buy I, I think, into it. I think I saw this on the wall of a sports clip uh, place, uh, barbershop, but it said uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And, you know, that's that's something on a barbershop wall, but that's that's not a bad mantra to carry with you through life. right? Yeah, everyone just go watch Rudy. <laughs> Sean <laughs> yeah. Astin, I'll show you just how fucking anything's possible. Right. Little right, Irish right. Sean Astin. Give it is all for Notre Dame. That's what we want to fucking see. <laughs> no, I think that's fucking beautiful, especially like nowadays. There's there's a stylization that's happening inside of tattooing where people are forcing themselves to be reductive in their interpretation of the industry of the whole, right? So rather than trying to learn how to tattoo, which like Brian and I have been tattooing for like 20 years, right? So when, when we're looking at the idea of application, it's become more focused on the trade or the craft as opposed to an expression of ourself that mm-hmm. like, regardless of what we're coming up with and dude, I was totally going to say dis unirregardlessliness. Um, that's nasty. My, I said that to my wife the other day. She's like, she should just said, fuck you. Um, so like when they're looking at themselves in these things and they have that same thing, right? This, this idea or notion that they can have this freedom. They can think that they can do what they want. They can do all this stuff and they don't value the experience of someone else because it doesn't match with their ontology or at least with whatever their idea of the future could hold for them that it ends up reducing the total knowledge available for the, the subsequent generations to follow, which is kind of mm-hmm. like where we ended up like Brian and I, you know, where, and I, 
there's always like this this conflict between him and I because when he would find something that would work, that was it. And he fucking so good <laughs> because he's like, this works. Fuck off. I'm done. On to the next thing. He test, 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 work, done. Science all the way through. Kept getting better, better, better. And every time I would get something and I'd be like, this worked. Why? I never had a person to back it up off of to try and like test something up because one, I'm same thing. I was a total fucking prick when I was younger. I'd be like, well, this guy doesn't know shit. And so I had to walk through the fucking mud and 10 years worth of garbage trying to figure out what I was doing was wrong by testing my hypothesis again and again and again and again and again and again, again. never having a fact check, never believing in myself either, right? After 10 years, you finally have done so much wrong. You're like, well, all I'm left with is right, which is fucking stupid. Because if I met Brian fucking 20 years ago and he's like, hey, you're being stupid, just do it like this. Yeah. World conquest question mark. (laughs) Well, another thing that's big about the pragmatists is the importance of pluralism. Like Mm -hmm. they don't believe there's any one right way to do anything. You know, like there's a lot of different ways to be successful. So never done math. What's that? (laughs) They've never done math. That's so that's such a bad pragmatist joke. Oh my god, you fucking it's like it's just it's like it's like an abject fucking form of like contesting pluralism is like literally you bring up numerical equivalency. Yeah, right. It's just like is a philosophical joke. I like see Dr. Spencer's just like Jesus fucking wept guy, like duh, you know, but no. No, I mean, no, mathematics is not linear like that. I mean, like um, with so many things in math, there's multiple ways to get to the right answer. Forward, back, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, sure, sure. There's something like order of operations. I I, I will give you that, Brian, you know, where you do have to go in certain orders or you're going to get things wrong. But with more complex things, sometimes, you know, like where you start in the equation or what part you work can be you know there can be some variation in there i'm thinking of like geometric proofs for example where if you're given a set of assumptions and you're given a conclusion you're trying to prove you can take different routes i mean and that's that's a part of logic too and one of the things i loved i don't teach logic that much but one of the things i loved when i did teach logic is it's like being able to read a student's mind because when a student works a proof there might be you know, three or four different ways to solve that problem. But which way is the student going to pick? You know, what what flow of logic are they going to go through to get to the correct answer? So even in mathematics, there's a little bit of subjectivity. Um, you know, uh, everything it, is subjective. Yeah, it may be. It's, it's always a hair of gray room. <laughs> right, right. It's obviously much more objective. This is why philosophers have always been tempted to think that mathematics equals truth, right? Because yeah, numerical equivalency kind of, is a dangerous yeah. fucking thing to apply to right. stuff. Quantification right. of like philosophy of mind, right? Trying to quantify yeah. experience or yeah. ideas or fucking yeah. anything. It's, that's a fucking de- the. F- I don't know if I ever told you this. I did the prisoner's dilemma mm-hmm. as a project for, for my ethics class. I wrote mm-hmm. a, a 17 page paper on a 100 level class. <laughs> and my fucking professor was like, super cool dude california surfer right he came up he's like i'm not gonna fucking read this bro 
<laughs> he's like what do you want to do when you grow up and i'm like well i'm 35 and he goes why are you doing philosophy and i said i think it's fun he's like dude switch majors <laughs> <laughs> sorry let's go with some roast that i'm two glasses of wine in i'm actually getting a little bit buzzed because i've lost 40 pounds this month jesus fucking wept sorry yes ended up in the hospital brian running has worked i'm down 40 fucking pounds in three and a half weeks whoa that's nice it sucks I ate spinach for a week until Brian told me that I could end up getting kidney stones and then I stopped. Right. I've been, I've been taking yeah. beetroot powder. A bunch of, like, and Brian sent me all this stuff. He's like, take this, 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 this. He's like, let me go to my kitchen. That's how he always goes with all this stuff. He finds all this pop, 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 pop. I started taking mm -hmm. it and I'm getting skinny. Good. Not wearing sweatpants today. Mm -hmm. I'm wearing sweat shorts. <laughs> <laughs> nice anyways uh i'll end up having a cut point right there i'm not gonna lie i've been dwelling on that question you originally asked for yeah. like the last 25 or 30 minutes when you said something about fucking people finding their bliss through their work or yeah. letting their job generate their identity like that's the most ignorant thing i've ever heard of i don't understand it yeah like I, especially as way. an artist you need an identity before you generate work mm -hmm. right like you can't Ooh. find an identity stop making your oh. work no actually okay i guess i could argue on both sides of that stuff because i'm actually having kind of the same debate with uh with with anthony right now anthony watchless watchless like, fucking because he's like how like, can you uh, remove your identity you see so marks? many tattoo artists that just rip off shit yeah like those are the people trying to find an identity through their work. They're just mm. stealing work from everyone else. So their mm. identity essentially is just a lazy fucking idiot. Well, uh, that's <laughs> the people that had an identity before they actually started creating the artwork, right? Their artwork is their identity. That's why it's fucking original. That's why it looks great. Well, that, but I mean, that's always the pathway to mastery. <laughs> the whole question well. pisses me off in terms of oh, I know, tattoo dude. art. But it's like, you know, when, when you're trying to learn conventions, you're trying to understand the air quote rules around what you're doing. Mimicry is the first step towards mastery for most people, right? If they're not as fucking skilled as you, you prick. Like, it's not fair. <laughs> Foundationalism <laughs> is the first step. Well, you have, to, you have to find a foundation and build on it. Here we go. Foundationalism, Dr. Spencer. Let's talk mm -hmm. aesthetics right now. Because mm -hmm. Brian is a foundationalist right across the board. Yeah. And that worked for him. You know, I mean, this is what I was getting at with pluralism. It's <laughs> like, you know, yeah. there, there's a, there's a, like, I, I'm sure when, when you talk to the masters in any industry mm. or any, any craft or any art, you know, they've all taken different paths up to the top of that mountain. And, you know, some may be easier ways that are easier to teach or to help people show them how to get up there. Um, and other people, you know, kind of the way you were describing, <laughs> describing Ryan had to forge your own path and like, like find things out the hard way. I mean, I think that's what we all, I think that's the, I think that's the way it works. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, I mean, the pragmatists were. Yeah, there's practicality and, and impracticality. Right. Right. That's objective in and of itself. Or you can go without a map. That's fucking, no, that doesn't matter. You're not going to fucking Robert Frost it in the woods and never really go into the fucking woods, right? Like, you just like, right. 
anyway. But the issue, Brian, <laughs> is that the map is not the territory. The map is just the representation of one other person's experience there. Now, you would probably Ooh. be smarter to go into the wilds with the map than without a map. But, but at the same time, you know, like there's people who get beholden to the map. I mean, I think about that. I don't know. There's an episode of The Office where Michael runs his car into the water because the GPS tells him to do so. You know, like it says, like, go, go, go straight. And like, it's obvious he's going to run it. It's way far the map and not the GPS. <laughs> right. You know, like, so the so GPS always... is YouTube, kids. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, we, we, you, and, and the world, the world just needs different types and different abilities. People, I mean, we need the people who, go off into the wild areas and figure it out or die. We need the people who more systematically go about it and write the maps and then send I them back to us. I you know? can't fucking condone phenomenology. And I don't know why. And I know I had this talk, I think, with you before, Albert. But it was just like, I don't know why I fucking hate this Harvard Divinity School bullshit at the beginning. And I don't know. It just bothers me. And I don't know why. And maybe it's something that's just ephemeral inside of me. It's just so Irish. I'm like, these guys are just a bunch of fucking kooks. And I couldn't fucking deal with it. But that whole idea of just trust in it. God will find a way. I can't. I can't do it. I can't. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, that strikes me as a form of, of you have to be desperate thinking. before that works. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't even want to start talking about phenomenology because they're a fucking whatever. A failed American philosophy. And so I'm speaking specifically about tattooing. Yes. Sure. Yeah, sure. so I don't give a shit how somebody learned how to peel a potato because you can do it with a spoon if you want to. <laughs> but right. the things that we do on a day to day basis are incredibly systematic. Sure, they are incredibly meticulous. Yeah, you have to have the right information in order to do it. If right. you just close your fucking eyes and wing it, you're gonna fuck up 110 times out of 100. Yeah. Sure. So, in that aspect. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room for just winging it. Well, mm, I think we always wing it, right? Because like every person's different. So I yeah. mean, we think about the medium and substrate that we're working on. Everyone's skin is going to be different. They're a different age. They have a different lifestyle. We can make Everybody approximations, has... right? But not. Hear, hear me out, though. Everybody yeah. has. If you've gone the right way into tattooing, you already have a map, right? Like you already have a foundational oh, yeah. knowledge that after is, that's the, the fucking... first two weeks you have a foundational knowledge of tattooing that's right? the problem so like if you're following a map and a tree falls down of course you got to figure out how to get around a tree but then you can get back onto your map yeah no, right? i know you get dude. back onto your route but like how much apprenticeship is actually available inside the industry now that's that's functional useful and actually applicable to the industry and that that's been my fucking argument the whole way along like like if you were training me I, yeah, fine, right? If I was, and I've trained people too, it's a fucking woo, like a fucking winding course through shit to try and adapt to them as a person and how their spiritual and physical and emotional needs need us, which I know is totally polar opposite than Brian, right? See, like, that's useless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to create a deeper fundamental understanding and you're like, it's not fucking hard. And I think that's great. 
that's yeah. the way it works. I want I want you to know, like, probably not know it, right? Like, it's a pretty primitive process. Well, I you know can't it's a really problem. fuck it up if you have a little bit of information. Uh, yeah. We fucking disagree on that one because I, dude, like we, I, I fucking <laughs> tens of thousands of people out there think or feel like they have the basic primitive information on this stuff, and you go on tattooing for beginners by beginners on Facebook, and just spend five minutes doom scrolling that shit. Yeah. So here, here's the thing though, like that tattooing by beginners for beginners thing, right? Like if you're just looking at shit people that are in their first three weeks of tattooing or you know first month of tattooing oh my God. even yeah. if it's the first five years because i always just kind of condense that down like five years is your first day of tattooing yeah oh. that right there is just you're you're learning to read a map right like that is your foundation yeah we have a we have a rule on the show it's mm-hmm. 10 fucking forward slash 90 10 percent Skill, 90% common sense and good fucking decisions. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's tattooing in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a, I think that's one of the only things we agree on, Brian. <laughs> like, yeah. how to get that, there. That's, I, I, that's like, just my ratio for life. Are we supposed to be cradling them and kissing them? Are you like, fucking throw them out to the wolves? 10% make it. Those are the ones Spartan-esque. Yeah fucking they were born the oh i'm very spartan in my belief system (laughs) that's just it though like if you coddle somebody too much they're just gonna fuck shit up almost on purpose it's almost uh self-defiant you know like they're just the whole thing is they're just gonna end up fucking it up on purpose because they'd rather have the attention than to actually do the good job you can't fucking coddle somebody like that teach them the shit they need to know and then let them fucking figure out how to problem solve for themselves, right? Doctor Spencer, what's your take Just on that? In a nutshell, how, how do you how would you take that in your classroom, Doctor Spencer? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, Sorry. I don't, I don't think Brian's wrong. I just think it's 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 not a strict either or and stuff. I mean, yeah, coddling can be bad, but people need to be nurtured. I mean, like at different phases in anybody's journey. They need different teachers and different approaches. And, you know, yes, with something like tattooing, modern tattooing, I mean, you might have a body of knowledge that functions as like the foundational principles for that style or that vocation or that study. But the thing like to remember is that like that didn't come down from Mount Olympus fully formed. You know what I mean? Like there was a process of gaining that knowledge through trial and error And our tribe needs people who are like the oddballs and the weirdos and the hard cases, right? Because even though they may be more of a danger to themselves now, maybe they've always been more of a danger to themselves than an advantage to the tribe. But like they definitely were the ones that that through that trial and error, error figured stuff out and we now benefit for it. So it's like, let's go back to Purse. I mean, Purse was this genius and stuff, but like, he had all these personality problems and and it's, and it's like, you know, Uh, we, we're, we're not, we are subjective creatures. You know, we do have certain patterns and habits in mind and what works really well for one person 
may not work really well for another. And we get built up a body of knowledge that appears to be the best way to do this for the most number of people, like for efficiency, but it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't work in all circumstances, right? And there's always the possibility that something new will come along and if not totally disrupt the paradigm, will at least change it significantly. So, I mean, that's, and I mean, you guys brought me on here to give a, a pragmatist point of view. I mean, I, I think that's how a, a pragmatist would respond to this question of tattooing pedagogy, right? Yeah, I think it's fucking great. And this is why I'm pointing up because Albert's above me. That's why he is the best fucking teacher I've ever had in my entire fucking life. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't disagree with the idea of quote unquote nurturing, but nurturing is not coddling, right? Yeah. Like nurturing could be as simple as like, hey, you did really good on that today. High five. Right. right. Boom. Easy enough. Coddling is holding somebody's fucking hand the entire goddamn this time. And so even if they fucked Irish. up, reassuring them. Like, right. That has no room in. This is so Irish. This is the most Irish fucking thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. Okay there, kiddo. You fucking played a good third inning. I loved you for that inning. But if you play shit on the fucking back end, you're going home. We're not getting pizza. (laughs) Yeah. And there you go. And I mean, I teach philosophy of sports. So, you know, this comes up all the time with, you know, whether all kids Uh, should get a trophy or whatever, you know, and it's like, look, it's pretty clear with child developmental psychology that up until about second, maybe third grade, every kid should get a trophy because it's more important that they feel like they belong, that they've contributed, that they have a positive experience doing sports, doing the game. After that though, the, the child psychology, they start comparing themselves. They get start getting a sense of what they're good at, what other people are good at, what they're not good at and this sort of thing. So even if the parents understand competition, right? So even if the parents aren't keeping score, the kids are. Mm. And like at that point, you are doing a disservice where if you're not rewarding talent and, you know, not punishing incompetence, we don't have to be that (laughs) but like, you know, just being honest, like, yeah, you you know, you you lost. I thought about Brian right there. This might not game. be for you, but if you really enjoy playing, <laughs> you know, you should stay on the team. Like you can still contribute or maybe you can, yeah. you know, you're not going to be the pitcher, uh, but be maybe a star. you can be, you know, uh, do, do something good. I mean, and again, right. that I think gets yeah. back to a bit of our society's problem with like perfectionism mm. and unrealistic, like ideals about things. And again, the, the pragmatists are, are, this is another way of thinking about that truth is what works, Right. I think every pragmatist would agree, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know? Like if you're always, I mean, it's not that it's wrong to strive for perfection or excellence, but you just need to do things well. You just need to be the best you can be at something, right? And that's good enough. So, you know, you may not go on to be a professional baseball player or something, but you might have incredible fun and 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 fitness like doing that through college or high school or something like that and i think we just need to be more accepting of that i'm not saying that you're not taking that point of view brian i think that you are but i'm just sort of like again clarifying i just don't believe in the idea of perfectionism 
like chasing perfection. Right. And that's just stupid. Right. It doesn't exist. So you, you can't really do it. Well, right. it's like chasing an ideal, right? Like if you are going after the city of gold, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to find that space where maybe you can find eternity and eternal life and, and salvation, you know, much like if we're going to go back to the old Irish roots there, buddy, how to find our way into heaven. Somehow I'm just jumping right back into theism. What's yeah. happening here? And that's just how I fucking tie everything into this, right? Might as well go back to Sister Mary Fidelis when she told me after I stabbed poor Stephen in the spine with a darning needle in third grade. I did. This kid flicked my fucking ears every day from kindergarten to third grade. And then we had this social project. We had to start stitching stuff together with some darning needles at the school. So Stephen was sitting there flicking my ears. Bigger, bigger, go fuck yourself. And he got called to the front by Mrs. Moore. So I stood up, he started to walk down the aisle, and I stood up with a fucking darning needle and I buried it in his spine. And he hit the fucking ground. He started twitching. I was third. <laughs> and I leaned over him and I said, go fuck yourself, Stephen. And Miss Whoa. Moore went, go to the office right now. So I Ugh. fucking strutted down there halfway and then I fucking started to lose my steam. And I was like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ. I opened the door. I let myself in. I sat down in the chair and the fucking the, uh, the administration assistant said, you can go and see this, the, the head sister right now. I was like, okay. So when I sat down, Sister Mary Fidelis looked at me and she said, Ryan, did you stab poor Stephen in the spine? I said, yes, sister, I did. She said, good for you. Grab two chocolates and go talk to Father John. And I was like, not asking any questions. Grab two chocolates, left the room, walked down the aisle, down two flights of stairs, through a fucking thing, all the way out to the fucking chapel. You're going to sit in the front pew right in front of the fucking. And I sat. And all of a sudden, this dude in this fucking robe comes out. And he says, Ryan, as he's walking across, comes down the stairs, sits down next to me. Did you stab poor Stephen in the spine with a needle? And I was like, yes, Father, I did. And he goes, good for you. Five Hail Marys, then get the fuck out of here. And he fucked off. <laughs> it was, I was nine years did old. Did you give him the other piece of chocolate? That's what you were supposed to do. No, I fucking ate both of them, dude. Fuck that shit. Uh, see, you were a prick when you were a kid. <laughs> I guess they knew what this other kid was like, is, is what you're saying. And ah, uh, uh, he was a rich prick. My family uh, was everybody knows who a piece of shit is in class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He just I had big ears and I was little. I had huge ears. They stuck out like fucking dumbo and he'd just fucking flick them. He flicked them one time so much till they bled and never did anything. Oh, man. And I just kept putting up with it for four years. Him and another kid kicked me in a corner until they broke my shin. Uh, they held me down and fucking beat me and they beat me and they beat me and the sisters fucking waited because there's no fighting in school so I never fucking tattled I never said shit I took my shit on the fucking chin and I didn't fucking complain and one day I fucking stabbed that prick in the spine mm-hmm. and after that he left me alone and this is why as much as I believe in pacifism <laughs> I mean, like, realistically, you know, sometimes you got to draw the line in the sand, right? Pragmatism is adaptable. Speak softly. <laughs> carry a big stick. Carry a big fucking darning needle. <laughs> and the author of that was uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, who mm. was one of William James's students at Harvard. So there you go.
All right, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank Dr. Albert Spencer of Portland State University for coming on and talking pragmatism with us. After we had finished recording, he had said he'd like to come on again, and I think it would be really fun to talk to him specifically now because we got over the hump about work application and how to just like give yourself to the process rather than trying to live your bliss. Uh, have him talk a little bit about aesthetics. I think it'd be fun. Uh, remember to keep in your calendar next week. We are going to be doing our live podcast. It was a live stream. Anyways, we're going to be all over the place. Come and check us out. You can drop in, ask us questions, do whatever you want to do. It's going to be me and Brian and a couple guests coming on and off. Maybe we'll even be wearing fake mustaches. It's going to be fantastic. If you have liked the show, leave us a review as well. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any of those ones you like. Just go ahead and drop us a, a five-star review or, you know, maybe a four if you think we can improve on stuff. If you go below that, I think you're just being overly critical because we know that the show is really fucking good. So anyways, keep it up. Stay positive, everyone. I feel like maybe in the beginning there I might have gotten a little bit overly sentimental with the fact I just got off of vacation and I don't know. I just want everyone to be chill. Anyways, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week at the live show. Have a great week. Ink Master is back for an all-new season on its new home, Paramount+. Plus. Host Joel Madden is joined by judges Nico Hurtado, Ami James, and Ryan Ashley, and guest star Dave Navarro as the Master of Chaos, as legendary artists go head-to-head for the title. Stream the new season of Ink Master now, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.